Eric, please go ahead. Hello, Tom. Hello, Eric. I actually have a question that's also about authenticity. So it looks like <laughs> we, have, we have a theme today. So um, it's actually a follow-up question to a question that I asked you on the Fireside Chat in March. And back then I asked you for your opinion on spiritual teachings that advise people to follow their highest excitement as a way to find their optimal path in life. You said that you didn't agree completely with this advice. Uh, you said that following one's highest excitement might help some people to follow their intuition. But in many cases, the probability is very high that people will end up following their ego instead. And that did make a lot of sense to me. But this time, I would like to look at this advice from a different angle. I've thought about it some more, and I realized that this advice is perhaps not meant as a guiding principle for finding the lowest entropy path in one's decision space, but more as a way to help people to become more authentic. I think that following your highest excitement basically comes down to the same thing as doing what you really want to do, which basically comes down to the same thing as being authentic. So I thought that maybe following your highest excitement could be good advice in the same way that be authentic is good advice, mm -hmm. not so much as an endpoint or as a trick to find the lowest entropy path, but as a starting point from which you can grow up more quickly compared to when you're all wadded up in doing what you think you should be doing, which is the domain of the intellect. So would you agree with my take on this? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, yes, I do agree with it. I think you've analyzed it very well, and uh, I think that is that is the case. When you are kind of doing, well, following your passion or doing what you, you, know, you, you want, then that is going to be often doing things because of your ego, doing things because of your intellect. Your intellect's decided, ah, this is the best path or doing things because of your beliefs. And those things will generally end up getting you in some trouble. They'll end up you know, causing negative things to happen because that's what happens when we base our choices on you know, ego, beliefs, and fear. So you then have to be open to learning. That's the key. So if you just, it's all about me. <clears throat> I do what I want whenever I want because I'm authentic and the hell with the rest of you, you know, then that's what we call arrogance. And that is not going to take you a very pretty place because it's not open to change. <clears throat> it's only open to self-expression. And everybody else needs to rearrange themselves to suit you and your expression. So it's good to be authentic. It's good to, to do those things that you feel like you need or should do. But you also have to always have your eyes open, your mind open, your feelings open to how you're, how you're interacting with the rest of the world. Are you creating a, you know, a trail of high entropy? Are you creating a trail of, of anger and upset and tears and dysfunction? If you are then that's not good. You should be making choices that are low entropy choices that minimize all that, not only for yourself, but for everybody else. So it's not just be authentic and, you know, stroll through the world like a giant, uh, you know, taking it however you want it. It's being very sensitive to other people and how you affect them.
And it's not, well, this makes me feel good, but it upsets other people. Well, it's their problem. That's arrogance. The people you interact with and how you interact with them and how much entropy you leave in your wake of that interaction is your responsibility. So that's the whole point. Be authentic, but be aware of how that plays in the world. How is that working for you? Does that lead to happiness? Does that lead to feeling good? Does it lead to, you know, good relationships, good interactions, satisfaction, peace? If it leads to all those things, then it's probably you're doing really well. If it doesn't lead to those things, then you probably need to change some things. So it, it takes a while. You be authentic for a while, but, you know, how's that working? Is that is that a low entropy set of choices? Or is it just a set of choices that makes you feel good and everybody else has to deal with it? That's more arrogant. You know, I'm important, nobody else is kind of an attitude, whereas becoming love is other people are very significant or the most important. So how they react to it is very important to you. If it's just how you react to it, well, then that's fundamentally being self-centered. You know, everybody's everybody's out for themselves. So, so you see, being authentic can be misinterpreted to the point of just, you know, being yourself and let everybody else scramble to deal with it. And that's just a self-centered approach because being authentic means, you know, if you're going to turn that into something that's a useful tool for growing up, you have to do that along with the idea of how does that play in the world and what am I doing with entropy? How do other people, you know, how do I leave? What's the entropy state I leave others with when I'm like that? Maybe I need to be more considerate. Maybe I need to, you know, be differently with different people at different times. Or maybe I just need to change myself. So the optimal is that you get to a point where you follow who you are, you're honest and true to yourself, and in doing that, you're the most helpful to everybody else. You create the most peace and, and uh, you know, kindness and, and uh, helpfulness to everybody else at the same time so that those two things run together and are compatible rather than running at odds with each other. Thinking about this topic led to quite an aha moment for me because it made me realize how many of my choices were based on intellectual shoulds and ideals instead of just doing what I really wanted to do. And I realized it's better to just always be in a state of doing what I really want to do And then when the outcome is negative, working on changing my perspective or changing my being level quality so that what I really want to do changes to something more profitable for the whole. But I always stay in this state of I'm doing what I really want to do because Mm -hmm. once I shift to sort of acting because I think that's how I should act because that's more profitable to the whole, then my acting becomes very weak and inauthentic and I actually start to build up resentment inside of me. Yes. Yeah, that's very accurate. That's true. So as long as you're aware 
of how you inter how you are interacting, you know, how you're doing as far as other people. If other people are important, then that is the right way to go about it. Acting is not the good way to go about it. If you're not if you're not uh, if you're not that sensitive to other people, then you have to perhaps act a little bit to be more sensitive to other people until you become aware of how they feel and how and how your choices affect them. Yeah. And if it's more about them than it is about you, if you care about other people, then yeah, you'll do the right thing. So I think you're right. I think you're on a good path for you. And when you deal out of your intellect, that's a very problematic path because that intellect is where your ego and your beliefs, you know, tend to hang out as at the bottom of that intellect. So dealing through your intellect is often dealing through your, your beliefs and your ego and your fear and just be who you are and learn from it is probably the best way for you to go forward. You just always have to make sure that you're caring and not arrogant when you do that. That's the, that's the downside. That's the slippery slope on that method. You have to not be arrogant. You have to be caring about other people. So even if you think, well, those other people are just have problems, you know, it's their, it's their issue. It's their beliefs and their ego, but that's all right. You still care about them. You don't say, well, that's their problem. You know, if they, if they have this issue, then it's just their problem. They need to solve it. You know, it's not my problem. That's not right. If the things you do upset them, that is also your problem. You're not being helpful. You're not being, you know, part of the solution there with them. So you have to let other people be however they are so that they can be authentic. And how with everybody being authentic, we optimize the positiveness that everybody feels. We optimize, you know, the low entropy solution with everybody being authentic, which means you, you have to be authentic, but you have to be caring, both. That's all your responsibility. The effect you have on other people is your responsibility. We can't just point at them and say, well, that's their problem. They need to grow up. That's arrogance, putting yourself ahead of them. So that's the balance that you have to continually, you know, work with. How you affect other people is also your responsibility. That has to be part of your, that's part of the equation when you're starting to calculate the low entropy path has to be how you affect other people. And it doesn't matter whether those other people have problems or not. It's how do you affect them as they are. You have to accept them as they are and then try to leave a low entropy path through your interactions with them. So it's about being helpful and useful to others. You know, sometimes people have the idea, well, if I just live my life for others, then my life becomes hollow and empty. No, your life becomes one without fear without ego and without belief. And that turns out to be a really great life. It's not hollow and empty. You're just 
doing things because it makes other people feel good. Well, that's not the point. You need to do things that are good for other people, not just to make them feel good. You don't want to enable bad behavior, but you don't want to throw gasoline on a fire that's smoldering either. So you walk between those those paths. So you have to know when you're an enabler, enabling bad behavior, well, then you're feeding that is a bad thing. If you're not enabling bad behavior, you're just giving somebody opportunity to grow, then that's a good thing. And all of that changes from person to person, from you know minute to minute and hour to hour. So you're always juggling those possibilities, doing the best you can to work your low interview path through reality, through your interactions with other people, not to enable their bad behavior, but not to penalize them because they don't agree with you. They don't see it your way. So it's a, this entropy, you know, optimizing the, the, the low entropy path is a calculation that you don't just figure it out once and then do it. It's a, it's a moment by moment interaction and assessment. And everybody makes lots of mistakes in the process. And then we learn from them. And, you know, a decade later, we're a lot more grown up. I guess the, the trap that I tend to fall into is that in my intellect, I make those calculations and I see like, oh, yeah, for example, in my relationship, I see that the most ideal way for me to be is this and this. I have to always give her rights. If she wants to paint the room purple, I'll paint the room purple. If she wants to go out, I'll go out with her. But then I do all of those things because in my intellect, I've decided that that's a low entropy thing to do. <laughs> but then yeah. it's, it's mm-hmm. like, um, it's, it's not really authentic. And I right. think it would actually be better, better if I would just honestly say that I, don't, I really don't want to paint the room purple. I'm sorry. And if I do paint the room purple anyway, I'm just going to build up resentment inside of me. So we have to find another solution until Mm -hmm. I change. Right, exactly. If you're building up resentment because you're acting and not being, then that's not on your path to success. That's just a path to more and more failure. So then you have to deal with that resentment. That resentment comes out of your ego, comes out of your fear. Comes, you know, it's... It's not about other. It's about yourself. It's not what I want. So then you go back and you work with that. But meanwhile, you have to deal with the relationship. So sometimes you break relationships and learn a lot from them. Sometimes the relationships that are that explode and blow up are the ones that teach you the most. Well, sometimes you have to go through two or three or four or five blown up relationships before you finally grow up enough to where they don't blow up. So it's a kind of a chicken and an egg problem, right? You, you, uh, yeah. How do you get to that point? What comes first? You know, well, you are who you are. You got to deal with who you are. And if you, if you're dealing out of this is the way I want it, 
It needs to be my way. And if it's not my way, I'll resent it being your way because it's not my way. So it's about me, my needs, my wants, the way I am. And you need to, you need to just change and do whatever to be the way I am. And then I'll be, I'll be happy then if you just do it my way. Well, you realize how much trouble that causes when everybody feels that way. Relationships become almost impossible because everybody feels that way. And most relationships are very problematical. Most relationships are full of squabbling and fighting and struggle and, and, and whatever, just because most people are self-centered and they want it their way. They need it their way because that's just the way they are. Yeah, well, so is everybody else. <laughs> so how are you gonna, you know, how are you gonna, how are you gonna get there from where you are? Well, to pull yourself up at the bootstraps, you learn a little bit as you go, and eventually you realize that demanding that things be your way never works out very well. And then doing things somebody else's way is not really seen as, you know, annoying. It's not really seen as, as resentment because it makes for a good relationship. So now instead of resenting that you have to do it somebody else's way, you're glad to do it somebody else's way because the relationship is so much better. And you like that relationship being better. Oh, okay, this pays off. So it's not like I'm going to do it your way, but I resent it. It's I'm going to do it your way because I like it. I like the result, you see. It just changes. And pretty soon you are able to have good relationships, even with people who do have a lot of fear and demands and ego. And it's okay because a good relationship is really a wonderful thing to be in. All you have to do is get rid of your own self-centeredness. It has to be my way. So being authentic is a really good thing. It's a first step. Because if you're not authentic, you can't get there. If you're not authentic, you know, all you'll get is annoyance and, and, and upset because you're not doing what you want to do. But authenticity has to go along with an interest in other, not just an interest in self, a good relationship with other. And if that a good relationship requires you to do things that otherwise you would never do, well, you probably find out that it's worth it because a good relationship is a, a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing. It makes all the rest of your life so much better. And all you got to do is get rid of some of that self-centeredness and some of that has to be my way. Oh, well, suddenly that, you know, going to the opera when you really don't like opera, well, it's not so bad. Okay, you'll go and you'll listen and, you know, eventually you'll even learn to maybe like it or at least be neutral toward it. It's okay. So most of our likes and dislikes come out of our fears, come out of our egos, come out of our self-centeredness. And as we let go of that self-centeredness, 
a lot of things that we just didn't like before become okay or even fun. You change. And that's that's kind of the idea, is that then doing what the other person likes, you kind of learn to like what the other person likes rather than resent being drugged into something you don't want. Our likes and dislikes are mostly learned. They come, they come out of our, out of our egos. So once you get rid of that fear and that ego, then you can like all kinds of things. You know, it's the same stuff with, you know, it's the same thing like with people who, who have a lot of dislikes of food. Oh, I don't eat that. I can't eat this. I can't eat these other things. Nah, that's not for me. I need more of this. I need less of that. It's got to be just this way. You know, they have all these issues. Whereas all of those likes and dislikes are just learned behavior. Wouldn't it be easier to learn to like everything and how much happier your life would be? Everything. You sit down and you have a meal and people serve things and you enjoy it all. Even the stuff that, wow, that was weird, but it was kind of a new thing. Yeah, I kind of like that experience. I don't know that I'd go do it again, but it was neat. Now I know that, you see. So everything becomes positive then. You learn to not enforce your parochial kind of petty likes and dislikes that you've learned to, you get ingrained with them, particularly if you've been self-centered for a long time, you know, you have these things and they're yours and you don't want to let them go. And it's the way you are. And I don't like this and I do like that. And that's the way it has to be because that's me and you need to do it my way or I'll be unhappy. The other person says, yeah, but you need to do it my way or I'll be unhappy. So you both decide to be unhappy together. And now you have a dysfunctional relationship, which makes everybody miserable. You see? It's so much better to go the other route. Let me learn to enjoy the things that you do your way. Let me do it and not do it with being annoyed by it because it's not my way and I don't like it. But you do it and learn to like it. Find out what's good about it. Look for the silver lining in that dark cloud. You go, all right, I got to learn to eat broccoli. Oh, I detest broccoli, but... I'm going to learn to like it. I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to think about it. I'm going to experience that taste, and I'm going to tell myself, that's really not so bad. And eventually, I'll enjoy it. And that broccoli comes up, I'll say, oh, yeah, give me a little extra broccoli. I love it. Because you've changed who you are. So that's the point. It's not that not that this is me, I'm authentic, live with it. Because that's almost guaranteed to produce a poor relationship. Unless you're a narcissistic and your relationship is primarily with yourself. But in the long term, that's a very unhappy position to be in. You know, that's, that's not very fulfilling or satisfying. So if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody else, then you can bet that that's somebody else's ways that they are and what they like is not going to be the same as yours. So wouldn't it be neat if they learn to like all the things that you like and do the things the way you like to do them, and you learn to do all the things that they like and the way they like to do them, and now there's this much bigger list of things that we can do together and enjoy it, not feel put out or annoyed by it. 
So that's the thing. Those annoyances are inside of us, our fears, our egos. We can get over them. We can learn to like broccoli. We can learn to, you know, do things that otherwise we can learn to like going to operas. Even if we've been to a couple and we really didn't like it, instead of getting into, no, that's not my thing. And I never do things that aren't my thing. If it's not my thing, then I can't do it. It has to be, well, okay, I'll learn to like them. I'll learn to at least be neutral toward it, to where I can do it with you. And it'll be okay with it. I won't resent it. Because I know you like it. And it makes you happy. And if you're happy, that makes me happy. Because when you're happy, I really like being with you. So if I can do things that make you happy, then it'll make me happy too, because now I get to live with a happy person. You see how it works? It's a, it's sort of the chicken and egg. What goes first? Well, what, what has to happen first is you have to get rid of that self-centeredness and you have to get rid of that. It has to be my way because that's me and I'm authentic and that's, I just have to be that way. Well, okay. You can maintain that. But your life will tend to be a lot lonelier. It'll tend to be full of struggle. It'll be full of disappointments. Oh, no. I go out to this person's house and they're serving broccoli and, you know, they're vegetarians and it's all these green vegetables. Yuck. I can't eat here. Oh, I had a miserable time. It was terrible. I'll never do that again. You see, and you get all this negativity. Whereas if you just change yourself, you could have a really good time. So that's the problem. As long as you're self-focused, your life is going to be a struggle. Once you become other-focused, your life becomes happy and full of joy and satisfaction. Because the things that you can enjoy grow. The things that annoy you almost disappear. So that's the kind of changes. So being authentic is only good if you also care about other people. Being authentic and not caring about anybody is just going to make you arrogant. So does that help bring some perspective to the authenticity? For sure, yeah. Thank you. That was very valuable. It's just I think it's just about being authentic, and then it's it's a starting point. We don't take it as an end point. So right. we start authentic, and then we try to become authentically, unconditionally loving. Yes, exactly. Well said. Okay, thank you very much. That was very valuable. Very nicely said, Eric. Please go ahead, Cheryl. As I understand, we may have been in a virtual chat room before we became immersed in physical reality to grow up and learn faster than just talking to each other like a chat line. Um, mm. In a chat room, there are not many consequences as you can you can be unkind to someone and never have any real-time consequences of your actions there. As the new Internet of Things are moving forward, isn't it like going back to the chat room again? Um, what purpose would this serve the LCS? Or is this just the next step of coming out of the chat room, then completely immersed in physical reality, then adding the chat room back just for more fun? <laughs> well it's all part of our growth. You know, you can't, you can't skip steps in growing up. You kind of have to go through all the steps. And yes, we were in the chat room 
And we didn't have very consequential choices. We had choices, but they didn't mean much. There were hardly any consequences. So if the choice doesn't mean much, then you don't learn much. Right. If you're not, you know, if you don't have challenging choices, then you're not going to learn a whole lot. So we needed more challenging choices. And now we, we have that chat room back online. And sure enough, we have a lot of that going on where people are being rude to each other, being nasty to each other, just because there's no consequences. Because that's just somebody you'll never meet. You know, it's some, it's somebody lives on the other side of the world. You can, you can be as nasty as you like and as self-centered as you like. And who cares? Because no consequences. But now, you see, we're also grown up enough to realize that, that that is dysfunctional, that it's not being nice. It is being self-centered. It is abusive. Yes. You see, so we, we can, we kind of get that now. Okay. So our lesson is to use that communication with people all over the world to broaden our horizons to gain insight into how other people think and feel and still be caring, even though it you can be nasty and get away with it. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get away with it because it's not the way you are. So oh. now so now we have to get we now have to be able to use that same tool for a positive thing. And if we just use it for making ourselves feel better by putting other people down, you know, trolling sort of thing. If we just use it for that, well, we're just uh, wallowing around, you know, in our own arrogance and our own self-centeredness, and we're not growing. But we can use it for a tool to meet more people, see more things, have broader experiences, have a wider selection of, of events in which we get to, make a wider selection of choices so we can use it for a really good thing. Do things that do matter. Say things that are important to other people. Say things that are part of the solution, not part of the problem. See, so it's another opportunity to do it right. now Now we can take those tools and make them positive. So it's not that the internet or that the big chat room is itself a negative thing. It's just a thing. It's how we use it, how we come to it, what we do with it, how we express ourselves over it. That's the opportunity to grow up. This, you know, this, these new technologies are just technologies. They're there. They give us opportunities to be low entropy, and they give us opportunities to be high entropy. We can take the Internet and use it as a platform for scamming other people, and abusing people, we can use it for a platform for broadening ourselves and, and getting becoming less provincial and having bigger pictures. So it's just what we do with it. And, you know, we, we grow from all the, you know, all the new technologies. They're not only technologies of things, but they change the way we see the world. And if that change is a positive change, then they're part of the solution. So that's good, but we have to we have to make that choice, right? <clears throat> it just feels like wow, this tool sure is making a lot of entropy. 
that's true. We are using it very badly. The potential is there to use it very well. And we are also using it in a very good way, too, a, a wonderful way. Yes. You know, so it's it's a tool. Tools are kind of neutral. It's how we use them. It's how right. we approach them and how the choices we make with them. And that's what's important. So think of it as another opportunity to help us grow up. Another, uh, you know, another thing that we can use to make our lives worse or something we can use to make our lives better. And it all is up to us. Uh, that was so helpful. And thank you so much for everything. Thank you, Cheryl. Masi, please go ahead next. Hi, Tom. I wanted to ask you a question related to the separation of PMR and un-PMR. And one of the concepts that I don't understand in the MBT is the separation of PMR and un-PMR. It seems that these are two different realities in the MBT. For me, these cannot be separated. For me, all PMRs are also NPMRs and vice versa. For me, PMR is the manifested part of un-PMR, or in other words, the physical form of consciousness, and all un-PMRs are the unmanifested part of uh, PMRs, in other words, the non-physical part of consciousness. I guess you could have an un-PMR without PMR if one would be conscious, but there would be no kind uh, where there would be no kind of manifested reality where one could see, hear, smell, feel, or touch anything. But I don't think this works the other way around. That is, I don't think you can have a PMR without un-PMR because for me that would be the same as having the manifest manifestation of consciousness without consciousness itself. Masi, I think you're overthinking this problem. Uh, I agree with all the things you've said. There's no disagreements there, but you're making more out of it than what is intended, than I intended with the terms. The term PMR and NPMR were just terms that I could use to help people get a sense of, the, of what they think is physical and what they think is non-physical. And... They're mainly terms that a beginner, somebody new to this, can can immediately kind of get this sense of, of course, they think that their world, their physical reality is what's physical, right? That's PMR. That's the physical world. Well, it's not really a physical world at all. It's a, it's a virtual reality inside of consciousness, and consciousness is non-physical. So, you know, how is that? Well, you've you've thought it through to more depth than what the PMR and NPMR really were meant to, to do. They were just meant to be a separation in people's minds between two things. And one is the world, which is the universe that seems physical, that seems physical, and everything else. And I wanted to make that differentiation between the universe that seems physical and everything else just because that's, that is a kind of a differentiation that beginners need to make as they begin to understand consciousness. That there's a difference between the props in the physical world and the content of the mind. 
that those are different things. You know, the physical and the non-physical are different things. So it's just that introduction to the to the newbies that come that allows them to say, okay, I've got a physical universe, and then there's everything else. Now that everything else is all sorts of different virtual realities. It's you know different PMRs. I mean, it's got all kinds of things in it. But it, that was all that was really meant to be was a, a very simple difference between what I think is real, what most people, when they come first to MBT, you know, what they think is real, which is the physical universe, and that stuff that's also very important, but it's not part of the physical universe. All the subjective, the subjective world is not part of the physical world. It's part of the mind world. It's part of the thought world. It's part of consciousness. And to realize that there are those two different things. And once I can get them to see those two realms and that they're different, then I can slowly lead them to the point that consciousness is fundamental. That most of all the stuff that really matters is in that subjective world, not in the objective world. And that they are consciousness. And consciousness has to be non-physical from the viewpoint of the avatar. So it's just steps that people have to take to get through this understanding of consciousness and, you know, virtual reality and what seems to be this physical universe. So my terms were basically, well, I didn't actually invent the PMR and PMR. Bob Monroe invented that. Those were two of his, his uh, acronyms. I just used them. But he invented them for the same reason, just to make a differentiation between mind and matter, between consciousness and what we think of as the physical, which isn't really physical at all. It's just virtual reality being played by individuated units of consciousness. And then I make the point that physical and non-physical are just points of view. Neither one of them are fundamental. It just depends on where you are what things look like. So if you happen to be an avatar here, then the universe seems physical. If you happen to not be an avatar here, you're in some other virtual reality, then our universe doesn't exist and seems non-physical, just like somebody else's physical universe seems non-physical to us. And dreams seem physical when we're in them and not physical when we're not in them. And the physical and non-physical really aren't primary things at all. They're just points of view. That's all. Just a point of view. But I don't start there because that's too abstract for most people to start with that kind of a idea. So I start with what most people understand, and that is, this is physical. It's called the physical universe. I'm physical, and I live here in this physical place. That's kind of materialist viewpoint. And then there's everything else. And my first issue in trying to get people to see this picture is to have them admit that there is an everything else, <laughs> you know, that the physical isn't just the, the total sum of it all, that there is something that is important and real that's non-physical. There is a subjective part that is very meaningful. There is something called consciousness, and then I lead them to the idea that consciousness is not physical. Now, most consciousness researchers are still trying to create consciousness out of the brain, out of the physical world. That's what they're all about. You go to a, 
um, you know, the, some colloquium or some seminar or big meeting about consciousness and all the conscious researchers are there, what they're all about is different strategies to derive consciousness from physical reality. That consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the physical. It's, it's based in the physical because physical reality is primary and fundamental and everything else has to be causally related to the physical world. And then you don't have the physical and the non-physical. You only have one thing. It's the physical. And consciousness is an illusion created by the physical. You see, that's where consciousness researchers are, trying to work out how that illusion works. It's called the hard problem. <laughs> and it is a really, really hard problem because it doesn't work that way. That's what makes it so hard. Um, so in any case, uh, I didn't mean to to have the, the physical, non-physical, PMR and NPR have such in-depth definitions and meanings as you're giving to them. They were really just, okay. a, very, just a very superficial thing to help people yeah. differentiate between the two. Oh, so that's that's what I meant when I say you were overthinking it. You were taking that metaphor way beyond where that metaphor was ever intended to go, oh, and, and all the things you said were correct. Yes, oh, it's all it's all consciousness. Yes, yes. I wanted to also ask you about the the falsifiability of uh, the virtual reality. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, a scientific theory must be falsifiable for it to be considered a legitimate. Uh, scientific theory. To my knowledge, the virtual reality hypothesis is, is not falsifiable. Even many of the people who argue that it is possible that we are living in a virtual reality admit that this cannot be falsified. For example, computer designer Riz Work, who wrote the simulation hypothesis, seems to agree with the argument that the simulation hypothesis is unfalsifiable even though he argues that it's possible to find evidence to support the simulation hypothesis. hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong in that the simulation hypothesis is, is not falsifiable? So even if we find evidence that supports the simulation hypothesis, like findings of different kind of double-slit experiments, isn't it still so that the theory of virtual reality cannot become real mainstream scientific theory unless there is no longer this criteria of scientific theory being able to be falsified? Okay. It's a good question. And in order to answer that, you have to really understand what they mean by being falsifiable. What is meant by being falsifiable is it cannot be falsifiable in a material sense. Right there's you, you, when you when you say something is falsifiable, it's, you have to be able to, you know, if it if it is, well, that's the best way to say it. Um, you can do an experiment to show whether it's true or not. That's falsifiable. You have to be able to. There is some experiment that shows that it's true, or that it's not true. So, you know, the experiment that. The, they want to do, though, is a physical experiment. It has to be a physical experiment. So they, they say that, of course, you, I agree with them. You cannot 
show non-physical reality by doing a physical experiment. That's just kind of a, an obvious thing. There's nothing you're going to do physical that makes the non-physical physical because the non-physical isn't physical. So what do we call those things? It's uh, an oxymoron or, uh, you know, it's something that is just <clears throat> obviously self-evident. You know, that's, that's kind of the joke I had in my book with the takeoff on the Three Stooges, you know, with the uh, non-physical microscope trying to make the non-physical physical. That's what science is saying, that the non-physical can never be physical until we prove that it's physical. Well, to me, that is just nonsense. You know, you're not going to prove that the non-physical is physical. And if it's not physical, then it isn't science. It can't be science if it isn't physical, because if you're a materialist, everything has to be physical. So if you can't prove that the non-physical physical, then obviously, you know, it's unfalsifiable. There's no experiment that will ever show the non-physical is physical. Yes, that's true. So they're right. <laughs> that is indeed a fact. But the point is that in this reality, this larger reality that has virtual realities in it, like the one that we're in, you can falsify the, you know, the non-objective. But you don't do it physically. In other words, you can take MBT you can take the things that I say, and you can apply them. You can apply them to your life and say, all right, let me see how they apply. And do they apply to your life or not? That's how you falsify them. That's, how, that's the experiments you do. But that experiment has to be done in consciousness space. That experiment is done in a subjective space. That's what we've been talking about when we were talking about being authentic, you see. That's, that's like, okay, being authentic is on this pathway of, it's part of, the, part of the tool sets you use of trying to get rid of your fear and become authentic. So now, is there any way that we can physically prove that being authentic will help you become love? Well, no. Well, therefore, it's just something that people imagine because it's not physical. But can you actually do that experiment in consciousness? Yes. Work with it. Try working, getting rid of your fears. Try understanding other people's viewpoints and see if it makes your life better. See if your, if your uh, you know, world gets better. See if your understanding gets better. See if you understand a lot more than you did before. See if you have real knowledge that's helpful and useful that you can apply. So you can, but you have to do it. You have to do those experiments, not in an objective physical space, but in subjective mind space. And that you can prove it there, but you have to prove it to yourself. The, in, in objective space, you prove it and you take a picture of it and you hold this object up and say, all right, here's an object. Here it is. Everybody look at it. See, it's hard. I bang on it with this hammer and the hammer doesn't dent it. All right, it's got physical properties. And I've just proven to all of you that it has physical properties. Okay, but in mind space, each consciousness is an individual consciousness. And I can say, all right, 
Masi, what we do is we need to get rid of that fear. And if you get rid of that fear, you'll be happy. And if you say, well, you have to prove that to me physically, I'll say, well, no, I can't do that. <laughs> well, then it's not science. But if I say, well, just go try it. Try it. Work on that fear. Find your fears and get rid of them and see what it does to your life. And if you actually go do it, then I will approve my point. And you will get it. And you will understand it. And you'll say, that was true. So you see, we can do science, but we do it in the in the subjective world of consciousness. We can do experiments. Yes. But we do them. But the subjective world is individual. You can't do an experiment and say, okay, I did it. I got rid of my fear. Now my life changed dramatically. And therefore, I just show my life to everybody else and they'll understand it. No, nobody will understand it until they do it themselves because consciousness space is an individual, is an individual space. It's not the same as the objective shared space. So the same rules apply both places. You do have to have things that you can experimentally validate. Both sides in the subjective space, there needs to be things that can be, you know, validated. Because if you go try MBT and just none of it works and you get rid of your fear and you do all these things and your life's still a struggle, well, then you did the experiment and you invalidated it. It wasn't valid. Or you do validate it and you... It's kind of your job to do that science on your own to see what's true for you and what's not, not your experience, not your truth. So it does, you know, and in the material world, it's the same way. Well, if you're in the material world and I say, this is a table and a hammer can't dent it. Well, you should step up to it with the biggest hammer you can find and give it a whack and see if that's true. You know, there's physical experiments can be done in the physical world to demonstrate you know, physical things. Now, when that physical world is actually a virtual reality, it works exactly the same way. Within the rule set of that virtual reality, you can do things that are experiments, and you can see how that rule set works. So in a different virtual reality, things work differently. Different virtual reality, I can teleport. I can do sorts of lots of things that I can't do here. And... I can say, well, you can teleport too, and you can prove that to yourself. You can go experience it, and it'll work for you. Yes, I wanted to ask about more about the virtual reality. Do you think that if we find enough evidence that maybe we are living in a virtual reality, that can you know make it mainstream if we find it? Oh, yes, absolutely. What happens is that you have to make it reasonable. You know, It has to make sense. It has to be logical. That's that's the key. So if we have double slit experiments and the double slit experiments do things that are impossible from a materialist viewpoint, like particles without any force being acted on them from the outside, for some unknown reason, rearrange themselves in interference patterns. Why would they do that? How would they do that? There's no force. What makes that little particle move itself around and, you know, make that pattern? on that screen. How is that possible? It's not possible in a material world. There's no force. There's nothing there. So it's just impossible. So when you have impossible things like that, then there's room for somebody else to say, well, you know, 
if instead of looking at it as a physical particle, we looked at it as just probability, it could be lots of different places. And, and uh, you know, when we make a measurement, it we get a physical result because it's a physical measurement in a physical reality. So we force it. But that means there's something bigger. There's there's something behind the curtain. It's not all just physical. You know, you got the what's in front of the curtain that we see, and that's all physical. But, <clears throat> hey, guys, there's something else behind the, cur- behind the curtain that is important to our reality. That's more fundamental. Our reality is based on something beyond the material. Well, okay, quantum mechanics made that point, and they've made it over and over and over again, but because materialist scientists don't know what to do with it. Okay, there's something behind the curtain, but what? We don't know. So we'll just pretend that it's impossible and we'll never know. You know, okay, well, that satisfies us. Let's go on. So we have that sort of thing. But yes, if you provide enough evidence of a, of a, an idea, of a theory, of a way of looking at this, what's behind the curtain, that makes sense, then it will be accepted as science, and science will grow and expand in order to accept it because it's logical. So materialism isn't going to dominate dominate science forever. It's just dominated science since science started, you know, since Newton. The clockwork universe is just dominated, and it's still dominating, but it's losing ground. More and more people are saying this reality is information-based, not material-based. It's not particles. It's not waves. It's information. And that idea is gaining strength. And as that gains strength, then eventually, if somebody can come up with the logic that shows you how that works and why particles should be probability distributions, and it does make sense, and it enables people to explain the results of their experiments, both subjective and objective, then science will change. And they will accept that, and reality in their minds will get bigger. And now what's behind the curtain will be part of their reality, as well as what's in front. And yes, that will happen. It's just a slow process. Because the, you know, it's really hard. People who have, it takes generations. It's not usually done in a single generation. You know, like uh, Planck said, you know, he made the quip because quantum mechanics was, was uh, and relativity both, had such a hard time gaining traction in the, in the physics community. He made the quip that, uh, that uh, physics moves forward one funeral at a time. It progresses one funeral at a time, I think was his quote. Meaning that you're going to have to wait till people who are trapped in their beliefs move on and new people come in with, with more open minds. And that's probably true. It's going to take a few generations. Well, we've had a few generations. Quantum mechanics is now 100 years old, basically, very close to it. So we've had a century and hasn't budged much, but it's fraying around the edges pretty badly. And there's a lot of, you know, young physicists and even some old ones that, uh, you know, think that information is what reality is, not particles or waves, not physical stuff, because information itself is not physical. You know, how much does information weigh? 
know, how much does how much does an idea weigh? How much how much volume does an idea take up? You know, it's it's not uh, a physical it's not physical uh, at all. So if you say the world is the reality is information based, you're basically saying that it's non physical. Now they haven't accepted that yet. They're just saying, well, I didn't say that. I just said that it's information, and I don't know what that means. I'm not going to speculate. That's basically where we are now. But that's the first step. <laughs> After we get past the first step, there'll be time for the second step. But we'll get there. Yeah, it will. It will change. It's just dominant now. It's a belief, and like any belief that dominates, it takes a while to change it. So. But I think it's possible in the next two or three decades we could make that change. I don't think it's going to be another century, you know, another hundred years. The problem was the reason we didn't make the change back in the 1920s when quantum mechanics first kind of saw the fact that we weren't a, a material reality and that matter couldn't explain the experiment is that they didn't have an alternative. They couldn't see it from any other perspective that made sense. Well, now we can. Virtual reality is a real thing. People have them in their homes. You know, it's entertainment. And the idea that this could be one now starts to sound more plausible than it did in the 1920s. It sounded just totally crazy in the 1920s. But now it doesn't sound nearly as crazy as it used to. And another two or three decades from now, it's going to sound even less crazy and less crazy as people have concepts and ideas of how this might work. And that's basically what MBT brings to it is a, it's, it's a, a theory or a, a set of metaphors, a way of understanding it. Whereas that becomes logic that you see that, that uh, a bigger picture that is logical and science runs on logic. Science runs on logic. People think that science runs on math, but science runs on logic. Math is just the logic of quantity. It's just one piece of logic. So we'll get there. Tom Campbell here. I and MBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.